You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Chris Oliver, who is running a screencast tutorial platform called GoRails, which helps developers learn Ruby on Rails by example. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about GoRails? Sure. Yeah, I I started GoRails about six years ago, actually, as of January 1st. Um, just recording screencasts on you know how to build different features in Ruby on Rails. Um, I've been doing Rails for uh, since 2010, I think. So a pretty long time. And uh, at some point I was like, you know, I'd like to build my own business and that kind of turned into Go Rails, and here we are today. Nice. So is, is it just you working on that platform then? Yep, it's just me. I record a video and publish it every week. We've got a couple of courses and um, a few other things on the sides, like Hatchbox is a, a hosting kind of platform where we'll configure a server and deploy your code. And we also have Jumpstart Pro, which is a a SaaS business template for Rails. So it's it's a lot of stuff and I've got some help around the sides with um, a couple people, you know, helping out on smaller things. But for the most part, I'm doing all the screencasts, doing most of the development and support and all those good things. Nice. Isn't that cool how that works out? It's like you learn this programming topic, you get interested in it. And now before you know it, it's like you're building this whole platform around it. And it's like the platform itself is probably helping you make the videos, right? Like getting content ideas and stuff. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, there was a point where I was recording screencasts and I didn't have another project and I was just getting burnout really fast and then started working on Hatchbox and the complexity of building a hosting platform is like pretty deep. So that ended up giving me kind of infinite amount of different topics that I could, you know, record and give examples of and actually just pull stuff right out of that app and turn them into screencasts. So it's been really good to have that to fuel the screencast because I'm sure people are familiar with, if, if you've been in the Rails community, you're familiar with Railscasts. And I know that Ryan said sometime he spent like 40 hours a week or, or a screencast could take about 40 hours to make and publish. And he was doing a video every week. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds awful. And I didn't want to get into, you know, spending that much time. And it's really nice to be able to go build something on the side and then have stuff really fresh in your mind to go, you know, teach in a, a screencast. So it's been a great way to keep it a lot more sustainable. Yeah, that almost reminds me a little bit of like, how Rails came into existence, right? Like DHH didn't just try to invent it. It's like he was building something and like the outcome of building that turned into the framework. Yeah. So it's like you're building these cool things with Hatchbox and like now it's like you have these cool video ideas. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of businesses come out of stuff like that. Like I know the Intercom guys were building their own product for like exception tracking and stuff and they were like, we need to be able to talk to our users better. And so they built a prototype that was intercom and then everybody started asking like what is that and they realized like maybe that should be our business because everyone wants to use that tool so yeah i think a lot of a lot of frameworks a lot of libraries and 
tools like Docker even come out of the same thing, right? You're building something to help make your life easier. And then it turns out like, oh, maybe we should just offer that because everyone else seems to have, you know, similar um, pains. So speaking of GrowRails a bit now, like what's traffic looking like nowadays? Um, traffic's like 2 million page views a year, I think. Um, just look that up in Google Analytics and it looks like it's about 500,000 people or something and uh, 2 million page views or so. So not too bad. No, not too bad at all. <laughs> <laughs> so now I think it's pretty obvious here and why you chose to use Rails for the platform considering all of your background with Rails beforehand. But did you ever look at considering to use like something else or have you looked into other platforms? Um, I have looked into other stuff. Um, it would be weird for me to probably build a Rails tutorial site not using Rails. Um, so that was an obvious choice for building Go Rails itself. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in, I, I like to look into the Laravel framework a lot. There's so much cool stuff going on. It's a framework like Rails, but it's it's got a nice emphasis on building products. Like they have a payments library that's officially maintained by the core framework developers and stuff. And that's stuff that I feel like people, it's a similar thing that attracted people to Rails. And then now that's changed a bit and they don't want to support some of that in rails and so it's it's been interesting to see you know some people leaving rails to go to laravel and stuff and and i think you know rails could use a lot more of that because that was what attracted people when you saw you know the five 15 minute video where they build dhh builds a blog way back when you know in the early days of rails that sort of thing when they built Basecamp inspired a lot of people that like, hey, I could go build a whole product with one developer. That's exciting. So um, I've looked into, you know, other frameworks that are doing similar stuff because that's kind of my interest in like helping people build products with a framework and those tools around it. Crystal Lang is really interesting to me too. It's like the Ruby syntax and stuff, uh, which I really enjoy, but uh, it's not free, you know, but you get a heck of a lot of speed for being able to use a very similar language. You do have to deal with uh, macros instead of metaprogramming and stuff, which maybe loses a little bit of the magic and niceties of Rails and Ruby. But it seems like a small trade-off for like a massive amount of performance. So that's that's been on my eye lately and Potentially, I'll fiddle with building um, some stuff in there, too. And there, there's a handful of uh, web frameworks in there, like Amber, that look like they're pretty interesting and fairly similar to Rails. So, yeah, we'll probably be looking into those soon. That's cool. Yeah, I'm the same way in the sense that I kind of like to keep a pulse on other technologies, even if I'm not really using them full time. Like, it's funny you mentioned uh, Laravel. So I'm kind of looking into maybe tinkering with Tailwind CSS, and I happened to find out that the uh, developer of Laracast is using Tailwind. So he had a video on YouTube, like walking through using it, and like before you know it, it's like I was learning a little bit about Laravel without even trying. Yeah, the um, Tailwind stuff I think really stemmed from the Laravel community because Adam Lavin is pretty involved in Laravel and stuff, and. So when he started working on that, it just kind of took off in their community. And 
I even built the jumpstart SAS template for Rails with Tailwind, and it is, it's fantastic for, you know, the flexibility of being able to tweak anything. Whereas if you use Bootstrap, you have to kind of undo a lot of stuff, like your buttons. Um, a great way to find a site that uses Bootstrap is like people are very unlikely to change the buttons. It seems because they have to go undo some of the styles for those. So they leave those alone. They might tweak everything else. And you can kind of tell that right away by looking at the buttons. So Tailwind's a nice way to start from scratch and build up, you know, something completely unique, but kind of achieve the same level of a framework like you would get from Bootstrap. The downside is that you don't get any of the JavaScript niceties like modals and tabs and that sort of thing. So that can be a lot, a lot more work than you think out of the gate. Right. Yeah. I noticed that too. It's like a bit more low level, more control, but yeah, more work, but probably worth it. So is GoRails itself using Tailwind or Bootstrap? No, it is using Bootstrap. That's what I used when I built the site six years ago or something and uh, have just kept it on that. Um, at some point I would love to. I'm less of a designer as I wish I was. So for the most part, I've just gotten a theme or something and hacked it together using bootstrap. Um, and if I were to hire a designer and we, you know, built some mockups in sketch or Figma or something, then I would most likely go and convert it over to tailwind if I was to redesign the whole site, but just for simplicity, like it's like, I'm not going to benefit that much from, you know, switching to tailwind. So I just haven't done it, but I do use it for all my new projects. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's like probably a lesson in there somewhere. It's like if you're going to go out there and redo something internally, that's going to take all of your time, but your users won't really notice anything much. It's like, I don't know if that's the best use of your time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I I mean, I've redesigned GoRails a few times and like it may be a little more usable uh, from some of those, but part of those were just like, I got tired of the theme and wanted to change it. And it was like, I don't think there was any measurable difference. And now I'm like a month behind on other things because I spent all that time, you know, updating all the templates and whatever. Right. So speaking of uh, templates here, is GoRails like a server rendered app with sprinkles of JavaScript, the Rails way, or is it API based? Uh, it is a TurboLinks app. So it's all server side rendered. The links are all handled with TurboLinks. So whenever you click on something, it'll make an Ajax request, grab the new document. Doesn't redo any of the JavaScript or CSS because it's already got it loaded and it just replaces the the DOM. So that's been my approach on pretty much every site since uh, Rails made TurboLinks a default. People definitely get frustrated with it, especially if you're using like some third-party JavaScript embed. Not super easy to use with that, but it's the same kind of thing if you're using you know, view or react and doing client side routing and stuff. It's, it's got to be able to, you know, un, undo whatever widget whenever the page changes and stuff. So it's kind of got the same pros and cons, but there's a, a JavaScript library that, that Basecamp also released called Stimulus that you can use and create little, they call them controllers and you write your data attributes in your HTML, which automatically map to variables in your JavaScript. And then you can write very little JavaScript to add, you know, tabs or modals or something to your app. 
Um, and all of that's cool because behind the scenes, it connects using the JavaScript mutation observer API, which means you can write your JavaScript and it doesn't care about turbo links or navigation and stuff being replaced in the DOM because it, it uses the mutation observer API to monitor that for you. So anytime you insert tabs onto the page, they'll magically work and be connected because stimulus is always watching for those changes. Um, so it's a, been a really good way to add JavaScript functionality. That's kind of as minimal as I can keep it. I try and not go heavy handed on the JavaScript side of things. I can do more caching server side and that sort of thing. If I do this and then my JavaScript is, I don't, I don't have any, you know, massive JavaScript in this app anyways. The majority of it is comments um, and videos that are embedded. And those videos, I'm not building my own player or anything that's all embedded through either YouTube or Wistia. So I just try and keep my JavaScript to a minimum because I'm not really building an app that needs uh, real-time front-end or anything like that. Interesting, yeah. So when TurboLinks first came out, I was really into that. And whenever I build a Rails app, I'm, I'm happy to use it. But I do remember those pain points where it was like, well, how do you get like Google Analytics to work? And you have to hook into these other events and it became a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what's cool now is you can actually use, as long as you have a setup and a teardown function from Google Analytics or whatever, with Stimulus, you can just write one little controller that says on the Connect event, Go set up Google Analytics on the disconnect. Go tear down Google Analytics and you're done. And you drop that in. It will run, you know, as soon as it gets loaded. And then whatever happens to the DOM, uh, it will go and, and either connect again or disconnect and whatever. So you don't really, you can kind of use stimulus to build a wrapper around any JavaScript plugin and stuff like Flat Picker or whatever uh, without having to, worry too much about um, making it compatible with TurboLinks and using the right events and stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Also interesting that you mentioned Flat Picker. Like I just updated my Flask course to use like Webpack and all this other stuff and Date Time Picker was something I tackled and I came to use that library as well. Are you using it in GoRails too or no? Um, I think maybe just in the admin area, but there's nothing really in the app. I use it in a few other apps. Um, it's a really you know, pretty nice looking one and easy to use out of the box. Yeah. So when it comes to your setup here, you know, not that much JavaScript, basically just, you know, doing things here and there. Are you using Action Cable anywhere with, with like WebSockets or no? Um, not in GoRails, but in Hatchbox, I use it fairly extensively. So Hatchbox will go and configure a server for you and deploy your code. And so that app... I want to have real-time streaming of the logs and stuff. So what happens is like Hatchbox will SSH into your server and start running all the install stuff. Like it'll install Ruby and Postgres and MySQL and whatever else you need. And all of those logs are actually piped back over through Action Cable, which is just a wrapper for WebSockets and Rails, if you're not familiar with it. Um, and that whole thing runs, you know, in background jobs with uh, Sidekick. So that's going and logging into the server and then sending, you know, the logs back to the Sidekick job. Um, and then that's forwarding that stuff across Redis 
that ends up being streamed to the browser. So whatever browsers are subscribed to that server it's watching, then they're receiving the logs and then displaying them on the page. And that app has a few more complicated things. Like, you know, if you're, if you're choosing to build a cluster of servers you want to deploy to, you have to go and choose uh, several things. Like you choose which hosting provider you want, like DigitalOcean or AWS, Linode, Vulture, and so on. Then you choose your region. And if you're on AWS, you choose your VPC. Then you choose how many servers you want and their roles. And all of that stuff gets kind of complicated. So that ends up being like a, a Vue.js little app that is just for that form. So I don't use Vue for everything, but that form itself gets set up whenever TurboLinks loads that page and sees that uh, form on the page. Um, so I guess I do use Vue in, in those cases where it is a little bit nicer to have something that I can dynamically render stuff. Um, that does come in handy there. Yeah, or I think I watched one RailsConf video where DHH just introduced TurboLinks, and maybe I'm maybe my brain is is a little bit wishy washy on that, but I'm pretty sure he said like, yeah, when you need to bring in that front end complexity, then it's like you can just do it for that one tiny component of your app, like a calendar in in the Basecamp case, instead of just you know view becoming your whole app for the front end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's kind of the thing with. The Basecamp approach to development's often like, let's do the minimal amount of stuff, but achieve kind of the best performance we can for it. So TurboLinks is like a very, very small JavaScript client or library and, and effectively just intercepts any links you click and turns them into an Ajax request. And when it gets the HTML response back, it just replaces the page. You know, so they, they take that approach. Stimulus does the same stuff. It's very similar to the when I used Stimulus the first time, it felt like I was using jQuery again because it's just very simple. Like you connect events and then it'll, it'll call a function in your JavaScript. But the benefit of it is like you define it all in your HTML and then you're not querying for things on the page or any of that stuff. It just like auto connects everything for you, which is really nice, but it doesn't have any HTML rendering capability. So you can build that if you want, but it's not really intended for that. So Basecamp typically says like, go have a template already in your HTML that the server rendered. It can be hidden or whatever, but if you really wanna do that, you can use your JavaScript to go grab that template and then insert it. Um, if you're doing like nested forms or something, but they try and avoid as much of the heavier client side stuff because the thing you can control is your server's performance. The thing you can't control is the client's performance. So it could run on a phone, you know, an iPad, a you know, supercomputer in a browser, but like you don't really know that. So the more work you offload to the client, the more variation you're going to have in performance there for the end user. So that's kind of the direction they like to to push things like if we can do it on the server we probably want to do that yeah for sure because don't forget too, internet of things like pretty soon that toaster is going to have some type of web interface yeah <laughs> right yeah and all those like any of the little microprocessors and stuff that are rated for like outdoor things like they're very 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 slow 
you know, and it's just, it's because they're that way they can be the most reliable in freezing temperatures or whatever, but they're not it, the faster computers, the like more likely they are to break because you're cramming more stuff in, in it and stuff. So, you know, it's an interesting conundrum there. <laughs> yeah. So earlier you mentioned uh, Sidekick for the Hatchbox setup. Uh, do you want to just go maybe a little bit into your tech stack for GoRails? Like what else is part of this app? Yeah, GoRails is pretty straightforward. It's a Rails uh, 6 app. We just use Webpack for all the JavaScript and stuff. The only thing I really need to do in the background for GoRails is sending emails. So like notifications and stuff. So I actually use... Um, instead of Sidekick on that, I use a library called Sucker Punch that also runs background jobs. It just runs them as extra threads and it doesn't have any scheduling or anything, which is fine because I'm just sending notifications pretty much right away anyways. And that actually saves me from having to maintain you know, a separate process like Sidekick. So it's like one less point of failure and just keeps it simpler. Then Hatchbox, that is Rails and Vue and Turbolinks and um, Stimulus. And then a lot of the code is is Sidekick for the back end. Just lots of different scripts that have to be run. Very similar to what you would use with your Ansible scripts. Instead of doing using Ansible or Chef or something, I wrote it all myself just so that I had full knowledge of how everything worked. And if any of those dependencies changed. I wasn't, you know, at their will. If, you know, Ansible decides to change how it works or whatever, then if I was depending on that, then my business would now have to just follow whatever they did. So instead of doing that, I basically wrote my own that I control and you have a few kinks that you have to work out along the lines of you know, okay, well, sometimes we can't expect this to be installed, even though we previously installed it and whatever. But for the most part, it's not been too bad. And Sidekick's done several million jobs, you know, SSHing into a server to deploy code or install Postgres or whatever it might be. There's a bunch of little scripts that all run for every little one of those things, like setting up SSL or whatever. Right. So you mentioned that it sets up Postgres. So are you not using Docker then for GoRails and development or production? Um, no, I'm not actually using Docker for anything. Um, so I'm, I had set up GoRails a long time ago and just wanted to keep it as simple as possible, you know. And so, so it was just, and I'm also very familiar with Ubuntu. Um, so setting up my own server was like not a problem. I've been using Ubuntu for. Ever since high school, actually. So I know it very well. I had like a, I had a Google Summer of Code internship thing one summer where I did, where we basically replicated apt on Ubuntu for Windows. And that project never went anywhere. But like I got very familiar with packages and packaging on Linux. And um, so I've been pretty comfortable with it. So to keep everything as minimal and, and basically as cost effective as possible. I don't use anything other than uh, Rails and Ubuntu server and uh, Capistrano to deploy it. Okay. And then you have Postgres there and Redis for maybe general caching. 
Yeah, I use Redis for caching. One of the nice things about you can just use Redis for your Rails caching, but you can also use it for your PubSub and you can use it for your sidekick jobs. So uh, Hatchbox tends to use Redis for quite a bit um, for all of those things. And then that saves me from another process that could go down or one that I have to maintain and and using memcached would be great as well. Um, but it's it kind of saves me a dependency to worry about which I like doing when I'm kind of maintaining that all by myself. Yeah, for sure. I always like to think of Redis as like, you know, it's like a Swiss army knife. You can do so much with it. Mm-hmm. And man, Postgres is the same thing. Like they have PubSub built in and all that. JSON columns. Like I, I use that as well for a lot of things. I don't use their PubSub, but you know, the JSON columns are perfect whenever you're like, we need some sort of preferences for notifications we can make one column and just have it flexible for whatever notification types. We can just stuff them in there and have them on or off and we can add more. We can remove them and we don't have to make database migrations all the time. That's pretty handy for something that tends to change, you know, not not that often, but on a semi-regular basis, like once every quarter or something. Yeah, it's always scary when you have to run a migration in production. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and what what's cool is there's some libraries in Rails like Strong Migrations that will actually throw an error in development if you wrote a migration that would lock a table or something. So it can actually save you from a lot of production trouble that you might just not be aware of. If you're not super familiar with, you might want to rename a column or delete a column or add a default or whatever. And if you're not familiar with that, it seems like, okay, I just want to make this change, but the internals of how Postgres works might actually need to lock something, which could be a problem in production. And so a library like that, um, just having that installed in your Rails app makes for very convenient, you know, situation there where you're like, okay, I just want to make this change. And it's like, hold on a second, you should actually make this two migrations or you should do this in two steps or you should do it differently and it's even aware of some of the differences in postgres version so if postgres 10 didn't support a smooth operation for one of the, those things uh, but 11 or 12 does then it'll give you the error on 10 but not the more recent version which is really handy Wow. Yeah, that seems like a very, very useful library. Like, I'll admit, like, you know, I still classify myself as a Rails developer, but I don't really work with Rails that, that much anymore. But I was not aware of that library. And I guess it's a testament to how awesome the Rails community really is, right? It's like, you get tools like that because someone ran into that problem probably three years ago, and now they developed it, and you can take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Andrew Kane is the one who created Strong Migrations. And He's got he's got a ton of those. There's a bunch of like Rails performance um, guides that he has that are like just a list of a hundred different things you should go check out in your app to make sure you're doing as as well as you can. And he used to work at Instacart, so I think a lot of what he was doing was like if he was aware of these things or the team was, then he'd go build a library which they could put in the app that's going to help make sure that any new developers they hire will follow best practices automatically because they're forced to because of the the library being built into their app. So I think 
man, that's some of the stuff that the Rails community does so well that it's hard to find anywhere else. Like it's just been around for long enough that people are now getting into that. They're not just making assumptions about, that you know that stuff about Postgres or whatever. Um, you can use tools like that. And, you know, long-term, I would love to see that kind of thing being built into the framework itself. It's a lot to maintain, but it really makes the life for an average developer like a lot better. And you get to learn all those things because you're kind of forced to that way. So it, it is a neat, neat part of the community, I think. Yeah, almost reminds me a little bit about like Rails 6, right? Like it took them a really long time to get multi-database is like officially supported into Rails and like eventually it got on there. So yeah, this sounds like something maybe it'll get in there too at some point. Yeah. And th- that all was extracted from GitHub, which is very cool. So you know, if if it's GitHub building that and extracting it, then you know it's going to work at a very large scale. And it, it's still pretty preliminary as far as I can tell. Like there's no built-in well, sharding and load balancing and stuff, but there is, you know, access to multiple databases. And then in Rails 6.1, they'll be adding more of that stuff. So it will kind of give you more seamless use of, of your databases for scaling, which will be nice. But you'll still probably need to understand things like PG Bouncer and whatever uh, long term. But it really does help make the framework just naturally scale a lot more and that's always been people's you know complaint about rails whether it's warranted or not um but the performance concern is always something people seem to be worried about even if they have only a handful of users <laughs> right i always hear that it's like well you know my app needs like to handle 40 billion requests per second meanwhile it's like they've written zero lines of code yeah right <laughs> and you know it's funny too because like people People ask like, what size server does GoRails run? And I'm like, guess what? It runs on a $20 server from DigitalOcean and it does 2 million page views a year without breaking a sweat at all. Like the average CPU usage on it's like 2%. So like, you know, you can get by with some really cheap servers and they, and I have like half the RAM free still too. So like it, the server's probably more than what I actually need. I could probably get by with a $10 server. And it just comes down to like, did you build caching in? If you did, then great. And if you use Cloudflare or something that's a CDN around your app entirely, that saves a huge amount. I forget what the Cloudflare email said wrapping up 2019, but it was quite a bit of requests and bandwidth saved because they could just cache it on their end for Basically, you know, for every user that's not signed in, they're all going to see the exact same page unless you update the content. And then if you do, then it just updates the cache and serves it to the next group of people. So having a, a cache on several levels, like a cache for fragments in your app is great. But if you use something like Cloudflare as well, that saves so much. And then your server is just doing a whole lot less. And all that's free on Cloudflare, which is awesome. So just to be clear here, you're using Cloudflare then in front of GrowRails for all of your assets? Yeah, I pretty much use it in front of all of my apps because they give you free DDoS protection too. And there's bots and stuff scraping the site all the time and just poking around for you know issues in pagination queries and whatever. So Cloudflare helps to prevent some 
bad users, you get caching with it, and uh, you know you don't have to pay for that until you need certain features. So that's been my uh, go-to for quite a while, just for DNS and everything. So what about, uh, are you running like Nginx in front of your web server too or no? Um, so I'm using Nginx on the server and Passenger is what runs the Rails app. So internally, Nginx is proxying to Passenger and Passenger will like boot up the Rails app. Uh, if there's, you know, a typo or you've missed a variable or something, then it will like display a warning or an error page and then let you know about it. And it's pretty performant, but it's also another one of those cases where it's one less, you know, process for me to maintain on the server because it runs and gets compiled like as a module inside of Nginx. So I just have to make sure Nginx is running and my Rails app will be running on my server. If you use Puma, you can tweak it a lot more and Passenger has an enterprise version that allows you to to do more advanced configuration, but it's expensive. So if you did want to con- configure more, I would use Puma, but it's another process that you have to set up. You have to make sure that your Nginx proxy works reliably and has you know a good fallback error page and that sort of thing. And I have Hatchbox set up to do all that. So you can turn on, by default, we'll run your app with Passenger, but you can turn on Puma and then we'll go install like a systemd script to make sure it's always running and restarts if it crashed for whatever reason. But there are times, you know, people I've noticed with Hatchbox, like they don't really know, they just deployed their code, now their site's down and they're like, what's wrong? And you have to go look through the, the correct log file. And then if you have an Nginx log file or a uh, Rails log file, you got to poke around a few different places that you might find what's actually going on. So when I originally was doing Go Rails, just Nginx passenger, keep it simple, as few things as possible. And that was, you know, a great way to, to go uh, for simplicity. Yeah, it sounds like it's working out quite well. Now, you mentioned also Cloudflare deals with SSL, but are you also doing like Let's Encrypt on your server to get end-to-end encryption or no? Yeah, I do. Because Cloudflare has their own IPs and they will they will terminate SSL there, but anyone could try and intercept the connection from Cloudflare to your server. Hopefully it doesn't happen and you don't have to do that, but I do. So I'll have Let's Encrypt on my server and... Uh, just run that. So you can you can access the server directly and it will, you know, redirect you to SSL. And that's just an added piece of security. I would prefer that the whole connection from someone's browser to the app be entirely under SSL. So yeah, I use I use Let's Encrypt for that. I used to pay for uh SSL cert, but there's not much reason to, especially now that Let's Encrypt has wildcard certs. Like you can pretty much get everything you want from Let's Encrypt for free. Yeah, it's really nice now when you do uh, like DNS-based uh, authentication for your certs to get wildcards. It's not too shabby. Yeah, the the wildcard one requires you to put in your like API keys or whatever for authentication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, <laughs> there was, I forget what I did. Somewhere I had set that up and I used an API key that for some service 
that expired. So like three months later, my SSL cert uh, broke because the or the Let's Encrypt cron job couldn't renew the cert because the token had expired, which I thought was funny. Uh, oh, those, you know, it's those little things that'll get you. And then you're like, it's I, I don't remember. I set this up three months ago. And that's the stuff that gets to be annoying about maintaining stuff in production, you know? And those little things that you forget about. And if you didn't document every step that you took three months ago, you got to go spend an hour or whatever looking it up, trying to figure out what you did and how you do reset it up and all that. And then try and avoid those as much as I can. Yeah. So speaking of that process and like, you know, logging and metrics and error reporting, are you using anything for that or no? Um, I use actually... Airbit, which is a Rails app that uh, is open source. It's kind of like a, it clones like the Airbrake API or whatever. So you can run it on your own server and report errors from all your apps to it. So I have that running and Hatchbox deploys it. And then all of my apps will report errors to that. So I have my own little internal error monitoring thing. It'll email you and allow you to resolve things and keep track of the stack traces and whatever other parameters you typically get. So it's been, you know, a fun little project because I can deploy it with my own hosting thing. And, you know, that, that's been a good way to save a few bucks too. Um, the more apps you end up getting, you know, if you're like, I'm making screencasts all the time. So I've got tons and tons of apps that I'm running or deploying. So for me to be able to monitor errors across all those, for basically free, except for the cost of the DigitalOcean server, that saves a lot. So I've I've learned I've learned leaned that way a bit for a few things. Like GoRails has some tracking for the uh, videos that people watch. Sometimes there's people that love to basically commit fraud and go sign up for your service and then go claim to their credit card company that they didn't get what they paid for and they. They issue a chargeback. Well, it's nice to have some tracking for those types of things so that you can tell the bank in your dispute that like, no, they actually uh, use the paid service and, and you know, they're just trying to get away with this for free and whatever. And uh, I use uh, same thing or the same developer as the Strong Migrations. Andrew Kane wrote Ahoy which is a little Rails library that you can use to uh, track events in your app. So it just stores to your database directly. It's very similar to Mixpanel or like custom events you might send over to Google Analytics or something. But it's nice to be able to have it all in my database and to be able to query that. And if I don't need stuff after 30 days or 60 days, I can just like truncate that part of the table and uh, keep my database small or whatever. So... A lot of what I've been using is just trying to keep costs down as cheap as possible. So when it comes to like the video tracking itself, are you just doing some type of like like long pulling as a user is watching a video? Um, no, it's mostly whenever they click the play button, it'll trigger something to uh, track that event. Um, then that way it, it just knows that, hey, they watched the video or when the video started playing. That's all I really need to know. I know that Egghead does a cool thing where the way they pay their teachers is they actually track every like 
30 seconds of video that's watched and then they aggregate that up for the whole month and then split the month's revenue with all the teachers based on the percentage that uh, people watched your videos and then they multiply that by your royalty rate and that's how you get paid, which is pretty cool. So it uses you know a similar system internally. And then of course, that's probably a lot of data or events to be tracking. I'm sure they have a ton of records in that just from all the 30 second clips that people watch, especially if a video's 20 minutes long. If you watch the whole thing, that's a lot of little events. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the process of like slowly building my own course platform for myself. And that is one thing that I wanted to do. It's like, you know, every 10 seconds or something, I want to track, you know, the seconds watched for that video just so I can have people resume where they left off and stuff like that. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I'm using Wistia for the paid videos and they keep some of that analytics stuff internally. I don't remember if it's accessible via their API or not, uh, but it might be. And that, that could mm. be handy, but yeah, it's almost certainly you'll probably want to build something internal so you can keep track of exactly what you want to know with all that extra metadata or whatever too. So yeah, it seems like a good one you'll want to build yourself. So when it comes to Wistia, did you also look at alternatives like Vimeo as well or no? I did. Um, Vimeo was what I originally used and it was like cheap. You know, I forget what it was, like a hundred bucks a year, six years ago or something. It was, it was quite cheap. And I think a lot of other content creators, like people wanting to build screencast things tended to look to Vimeo because it was so cheap and I just got complaints from people right away that were like, hey, the videos aren't playing in my browser and it was working fine for me. And it just seemed like it wasn't as stable of a player at the time. So the cost of it wasn't really worth the trade-off there. So I ended up switching to Wistia and while it can be expensive, it is fantastic. I've never had any complaints. You can go and add you know, I would love to do this, but it would raise my bandwidth a ton. But to instead of use YouTube for all the free videos, you can use Wistia and then have like an email capture form at the end of the video or in the middle or before you even start, have people put in their email. That stuff can be really nice, but uh, your bandwidth is probably going to go through the roof for those free videos. So I haven't done that and I only use it for the paid stuff now and it can be kind of pricey originally it was really painful because it was like eating up so much of the monthly revenue like it was I forget like a $300 a month bill you know pretty early on the first year and when GoRails launched it was nine bucks a month so it's quite a few subscribers to just break even there and that was kind of frustrating but it's nice to not have to worry about the video playback working in all the browsers and they're adding new features all the time and i don't have to worry about you know uploading and transcoding videos myself or anything it's it's worth it yeah transcoding videos yourself is not fun <laughs> that's for sure yeah and i mean if you're paying for a service to do it for you it's it's expensive too so you know, it, it adds up pretty quick and it's nice for them to kind of take care of that for you, even if it costs you a little bit more. You don't have to worry about, I have to upload everything to S3 or DigitalOcean Spaces, transcode them, 
and keep links to the correct versions and then you know wire them up with video js or whatever it's it can be a lot of work so I, I it's another one of those things where i'm like it's at a point where i would rather pay them to maintain this and i just have to embed in go rails the id of the wistia video and that's it so saves me a lot of time so you mentioned uh, you know free videos paid videos you know you're charging x amount per month what payment gateway are you using or gateways even uh, I am using Stripe and Braintree, actually. So I used Stripe originally because Stripe is awesome. Um, it's really, really simple. Or it was simple until the strong customer authentication stuff came out. But I did that, and then there was always the people asking about PayPal. So I looked into PayPal. Oh, their API is really badly documented. It is a pain in the butt. They acquired Braintree, and I know GitHub and several other big places use Braintree for their payments. So I was like, well, you know, they have a pretty easy integration with PayPal. I will see about Braintree. Maybe I'll switch everything over to Braintree. And I got into it and ended up just using Braintree only for my PayPal customers. And their API is strange. Um, You can't convert a subscriber over from a monthly to a yearly plan. You have to actually cancel the monthly plan and then calculate the proration yourself for the yearly plan and apply that discount and stuff. It's strange. Uh, and so it's not really a compatible exactly one-to-one with, with Stripe. So it's been kind of frustrating. There's less webhooks for key things you might want to use. So I've tried to keep as much as I can in Stripe because it just works so well. And then as little as possible in Braintree and PayPal. But I use both and display both on the checkout page. And then inspired by Laravel, they have Cashier and they had written a wrapper around uh, Stripe and Braintree as two separate little libraries you could use. And it would give you helper methods like you know, you can actually swap a customer from a monthly to a yearly plan and give them their two-month discount or whatever it might be. Um, they have those calculations built in the library. So we took that and ported it over to Ruby, but added a bunch. So we have a gem called Pay that is kind of the same thing, but we have the ability for you to turn on Stripe and Braintree. In Laravel, it was like you chose one or the other. You can use both with pay in in Rails and Ruby. And then you can't like in the middle of a subscription switch from PayPal to credit card. But you know, all those little things we've done for you. And then Stripe has rewritten their API for the European Union regulations for strong customer authentication or SCA. And that makes payments a huge pain in the butt because... At any point, a customer can drop off in the middle of a, a checkout process or a subscription can require authentication from the customer because the bank said so. So you might be paying for something for nine months and then all of a sudden the bank's like, nope, we're not going to allow this next payment to go through. Uh, you have to bring the customer back on the site to approve and do like two-factor with their phone or something. So that breaks a lot of workflow things 
in the past that came out September last year and I spent three months around there uh, basically rewriting all my payments code for some of these things like jumpstart mostly and I ended up creating a course for um, all of the stripe SCA changes because it took me like three months to learn it all and then to go uh, upgrade my code to actually use it because now you have to send emails if the payments failed and every payment it can fail and then you have to render in your browser the like authentication modal and stuff so man payments went from something being simple to like to the point where i can imagine there's going to be several startups that are like we're going to build a wrapper around stripe so it's easy and you don't have to worry about any of this stuff it's crazy Oh man, I, I wish we were in a video call because like five minutes ago when you mentioned SCA with Stripe, like a tear just came down my eye. Like I, <laughs> I totally feel your pain, man. And if you think to listeners here, like he's just saying that, oh, it took three months, like go buy my payments course. Dealing with payment intents and SCA and Stripe now, it went from basically like one charge API call, maybe, maybe a webhook for an invoice. Like it's something you can implement in literally 15 minutes yeah. to like, yeah, I've been working on my payment system for like weeks in, uh, and it got to the point where, yeah, like I was just like, damn it, like I'm just going to work on something else for now. I know. I, I went and tried to read their docs like 30 times and <laughs> I, I mean, it is crazy to the point where like you have subscriptions. If you want to have a trial or not, that is two separate paths that you have to write your code for now. Whereas before it was like, cool, you have a trial, how many days? And you just tell it the number of days and you were good. Now, if you want to have a trial, your code has to know ahead of time. So it can say, let's go create one setup intent for the trial uh, with a card direction. And if not, we're going to go do a, we're going to try and create a subscription and a payment intent instead so we can charge you right away. And then that just makes your code have to know like, five different branches for every type of payment and it is it is such a pain in the butt so yeah i i like recorded that course mostly out of frustration because i was like i would happily pay 150 bucks for a course like this to save me three months of time like i would have not made this course if i didn't have to but i was like i just need to to do this to help anyone else out because oh my gosh like this change is terrible. And like, if you don't have to deal with it because you're not in the EU, then great, don't, I wouldn't recommend it. But it's also, if anything changes in the US in the future, then we're, we might be affected by something like that. So it's good to be compatible with it to future-proof your code. So I wanted to do that just out of sake of being ready in the future because i never want to do that again <laughs> yeah i'm exactly the same way like i'm from the u.s technically i don't need to deal with it but it's like yeah if banks are going to start to get a little bit more strict with like two-factor off in between like starting a payment and finishing yeah i don't want to have to deal with that under pressure when it needs to be done i want that to be done now so it's smooth sailing later absolutely and it seems logical that that stuff will change in the future like it's just good for customers so it seems mm -hmm. like a good thing. Um, it's probably really bad for gyms and other businesses that rely on subscriptions that don't get used, but that's probably very, very good for customers. And, I, you know, I've always been a fan of the, like, 
Slack uh, only paying for active users. It'd be really cool if your gym was like, look, we'll only charge you if you actually came once that month. You know, that would be yep. pretty nice, but they would lose a ton of money, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I uh, like that breaks like the entire gym like <laughs> setup, I guess. Right. Yeah. They're not going to be near as profitable anymore. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of went off a little bit there on a tangent on, on Stripe payments, but I think it's an important one because it affects so many different applications. Do you want to kind of just like fast forward a little bit here? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, DigitalOcean, $20 a month server, everything is on one server. Does that include your database as well? Yeah. Um, so everything's just on there. I have like hourly backups set up in the DigitalOcean like snapshot backups too that are nightly. So at some point in the near future, now that DigitalOcean has their managed databases, I'll probably migrate that over so that I can have, you know, an actually managed database. But honestly, like the database for GoRails is tiny. I have users, I have comments, and I have uh, episodes and there's, you know, 300 some episodes. So there's not very much data in my database. So I haven't needed to scale it up. There's, you know, maybe some redundancy that would be nice to have so that if the site goes down, um, you know, I have a replica or something we can move to. But like, honestly, as long as it is as small as it is, it doesn't really matter if the site goes down for five minutes or something. If this was a product more like Hatchbox, that's much more crucial to someone's workflow, then yeah, you want more redundancy. You want a load balancer, a couple web servers, a managed database with replicas, that sort of thing. But for GoRails, it's just been like, you know, it is a service people pay for, but if it goes down for five minutes, not that big of a deal. So it's been one that I'm like, well, why pay extra for all this stuff that isn't really going to be that crucial? So as long as I have regular, very often backups that store and, and my backups run um, and, and they'll store and upload to S3 and then I have the bucket configured so that anything over 30 days old just gets deleted automatically. I know that, you know, everything's good and I have hourly backups for 30 days worth. So I should be more than happy with that amount of backups or whatever. Um, you know, are you just doing a SQL dump for your database then every hour? Uh, yeah, I think that's what happens internally. Um, there's a gem called backup brilliant name and it has a handful of things that, um, it can be configured to do so you can have it back up your database. I'm pretty sure it makes a dump of it. Uh, just with a regular PG dump command or whatever. And then it can also back up user files and rsync stuff over. Um, there, there's a lot of other options you can have. So you can have it back up files. You can have it tar it all and then split it into certain size chunks and then upload those. You can have it upload to DigitalOcean Spaces and to S3 you can have it do Slack notifications. And so I have it, you know, doing several of those things. And then I have a Slack channel that's like getting all of those updates um, to make sure that every hour it was successful and the backups worked correctly and all that. So that's good. And then I regularly will download a backup and then restore it to a database and just make sure that that is not corrupted or whatever. And it's, it's actually recoverable from, because as the, the GitLab team knows that that can be kind of painful. 
Um, oh yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> Oof. Yep. Always test your backups. Yep. So before we got, get into a little bit more stuff about like unexpected events and things like that, do you kind of just want to rewind and maybe talk us through your exact deployment process? Like how does code get from your dev box into uh, running in production? Yeah. So the deployment process is really straightforward. I use Capistrano, but the way that that works is just that it will SSH into your server. It has a folder for your deployment and there's a releases, well, there's a repository folder and it clones a, a your repository, but as a mirror, which means it's kind of like, it's kind of like the internal repository that GitHub stores of your, your code. And there's no working tree is the main difference. So then every deploy will actually go and ask that Git repo to create a tarball of a certain commit and then, or, or master or whatever. And then it will, it will make the tarball. It will extract it to a release folder with a timestamp. And then that is your deployment. So it pulls it down from Git, archives it, unarchives it into a new folder and then um, it will run all of your commands to install dependencies, um, compile your JavaScript and CSS, and then run your migrations. And once that's done, there's the current directory that's symlinked, and it will replace that symlink with a link to the latest release that just successfully went through. So that's how Capistrano works. Um, Hatchbox does the same process for all that. But it's got extra things like Capistrano, you got to run, you know, yourself from your own terminal or from your CI. Uh, we have webhook deployments that will trigger deploy on Hatchbox for you. Um, and at some point I will be, I, I set up GoRails well before Hatchbox existed, but I'll be moving GoRails and all my deployments from my own apps to Hatchbox, which will be really nice to have. So I'll be able to use my own app to deploy my own apps. And I use it for several other apps, but having my legacy, you know, servers and stuff now maintained and configured that way, that's consistent with everything else will be really handy. Um, Cause right now I have to go, I have to go SSH into the GoRail server and upgrade packages and that sort of thing. And the, the tricky thing is of course, when the Ubuntu LTS release comes out in April of 2020, that's going to be different package names and major versions and your gems and libraries and stuff are going to break again. And uh, that is usually one of the hardest parts of maintaining your own server, like those major operating system upgrades. And that is another one of those cases where like having a load balancer and a second web server is very handy because you can have one running while you upgrade the other server to 20.04 and then that your site doesn't go down while you're upgrading because last time I upgraded it and it was down for like an hour where you know some package didn't work correctly during or after the upgrade and the site was down for a while so those are little things that like I'm lucky because my customers are willing to deal with that once every two years or whatever when the new Ubuntu release happens but Ideally, that won't happen. So probably what I'll end up doing in April is just add a DigitalOcean load balancer, clone my GoRails repo, and have it just upgrade the database. 
and and do that and and I'll move my database over to a managed database from DigitalOcean and then I'll be able to I'll pay a little bit more but I'll have zero downtime which will be nice. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking when you were going through that it's like if you had the managed database now it almost sounds like you don't really have any other user content besides what gets saved in the database, right? Mm-hmm. Like users aren't uploading files, right? So then it's almost like to upgrade to Ubuntu 20.04 when it comes out, it's like even without a load balancer, you can probably just spin up a brand new server. Your data is still getting written to the managed database on the old server. And then when the new server is up and running, you can just flip it over at the DNS level, wait a day, and then you're good, kind of. Yeah, and actually, now that you mentioned that, the, I'm using a floating IP on DigitalOcean specifically for this recent next time around because I can spin up a new server and then just change the IP to point to the other server and you don't even have to wait for any DNS changes, which is really nice. So that is awesome. So that will probably be what I do. And I won't even need to add a load balancer for that. So right now, then when you do any type of application deployment, is there just a hitch for a couple of seconds of downtime? Yeah. And that's just uh, passenger restarting the Rails app. And I think there is maybe it's passenger enterprise, but they have a way of like spinning up a new copy of the app. Um, and then they don't forward anything over to that until it's like up and running. So it like continues serving stuff on the older deployment until then. But there is just a, a hiccup for like a second as it boots up the app. And then I've got it configured to, to like pre-warm the app. So as soon as Nginx starts up, it'll run a couple rails instances just so that it's always running and ready to serve. Right. That's a pretty cool setup. Yeah, I haven't used Passenger much. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just like the literal easiest thing you could possibly do to deploy a Rails app. You just configure Nginx to have Passenger enabled, and then you point it to the current directory, or you point it to the public directory of wherever your Rails app is deployed. So wherever that is, point it to the public directory. It knows to look up one parent directory to find a gem file or whatever it uses to detect a Rails app. But it'll also run Python and Node apps. So you can use it to deploy any of those. And I think they just look for like an index.js for Node and something similar for Python. So like if you don't want to have to maintain a, a systemd script and, and process for your app and a Nginx proxy, reverse proxy to that, you can just like let Passenger take care of it for you and it will just configure all that, which is pretty handy. Yeah. So speaking of systemd then, do you have things set up to where like if your server were to be rebooted, does everything come up by itself? Yeah. And I believe the Nginx stuff, I'm not sure if the official like Nginx package will auto enable that, but you can just run the systemd enable um, Nginx and that will start up Nginx as soon as the server boots up. And then because Passenger is built into that, then it will run your Rails app automatically. So that's the only thing for Go Rails that I have to do. But on Hatchbox, like it will go and if you've turned on Sidekick or another background worker or Puma, it will go and set up a systemd script and enable it to run on boot and monitor it and run it with your environment variables and all that stuff. And that's, that's been a fun thing. Like 
Hatchbox allows you to deploy multiple apps to the same server. And a lot of times, you know, you have an environment, the same variable in two apps, like your database URL is the exact same name for two apps. So being able to separate that out for each app so they use the correct database was a little tricky to figure out the first time. Um, But we're using RBN as the Ruby version manager and there's a plugin called RBN VARS that will look for a RBN VARS hidden file and then it will load up all those environment variables there and it will look up the parent folders until it finds those files and it will use those. So it's cool in that you can have two folders next to each other with those hidden files in each folder and they'll have totally different environments and then if you SSH into the server and want to run the Rails console, you can automatically have all the correct environment variables set up for you. The uh, systemd script that runs Sidekick or Rails will automatically have the correct ones as well. All that's like kind of taken care of for you as long as you run through RBN. So that's been a pretty handy thing to have and definitely made deploying multiple apps to the same server a lot easier because you don't have to like put that in config files that you might symlink during a ploy, which people d- used to do a lot uh, in the past where you'd, the first deploy you'd create a file on the server and then you change Capistrano to symlink something each deploy. It was just an easy way to like break something or forget to update that file or whatever and then deploy it and then it crashes or something. Yeah. Now it's it's been a while since I used Capistrano, um, but you said environment variables. So how do things like API keys make their way onto your server if they're not in version control? Um, so most of the time now I'm using the Rails encrypted credentials. So those API keys all get put in a file that Rails will encrypt and then it get ignores the key for decrypting them. So you have to put that key on your server, but you can keep the encrypted file in your Git repo. So that way, all your developers just need this one environment variable or key file to decrypt that, which is really handy. And then, yeah, we'll just drop that Rails master key in as an environment variable in production. Or if you wanted to, you could actually write it to the credentials.key file. And that will, it'll look in both of those places if it, finds one, then it will use that to decrypt the credentials. It's been a really nice feature that Rails added recently, but um, the first version of it, they only had one file for it. But of course, everyone uses different credentials for development and staging and production. So Rails 6 finally introduced separate files that are encrypted separately for those. So you can actually make it so that, you know, all your developers happen to have the production credentials in their repo, but none of them, unless they have the key, can actually decrypt that file. So it's a good way to like, you know, make sure that only production and only the developers who are allowed on the production server can access the production credentials and keep your security a little bit higher on on those things. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a, a big win there. So, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, and it's one of those things where you don't need to run like an external service for managing your credentials, which is nice if you want to just keep things simpler. 
Yeah, that's a motto I try to live by, right? It's like keep things as simple as possible until they don't work anymore. Yep. And that's the good time to add, you know, your other tool for doing that. Yep. I agree. On that note, like what are some of your best tips and and lessons learned from building this application? Oh, I mean, a lot of it is just like, you know, keep it simple. Like we've been talking about the whole time. Most of the time you can just add things. It's a lot more changeable than people think. Like they have to, you know, be ready for scale right away. There's a few things you should probably be aware of. Like, look, if you know that you're going to have a large database because you're going to be storing lots of data, you're probably a good idea to go start with a managed database. But like, if you got a small app like I have, don't bother, you know? Um, there's a lot of stuff that I do think is is good. Like, you know, use your master branch for only code that should go to production and set up your CI, like, GitHub actions, you know, have that run your test. And then as the last step, have it run Capistrano and deploy it to production. That makes it really easy to set up continuous deployment. And then you know that as a developer, I just need to merge this branch and voila, as long as it passes, it should go to production. That is just time-saving things that you don't have to worry about. You know, those, I think, make or break a development process a lot of times. You make a lot more mistakes the more manual stuff you have to do. And I've done that in the past where like you have to deploy and then I have to like wait a second and then restart Sidekick only after it's, you know, processed all its current jobs and stuff. And like that causes mistakes. So if you have those things that are like manual pieces, try and avoid those. Other than that, like... I don't know. I, I have stuff that is fairly small. So I just try and keep things cheap and easy and then, you know, build more tools around whatever I'm doing to keep it that way. Not always will you find other tools. A lot of the tools are for, you know, come from bigger companies that have bigger problems than you do. So if you need to go build some stuff, great. And then, you know, that's how Hatchbox ended up becoming a thing. I had to do a tutorial on how to set up a server and deploy with Capistrano and just decided to automate that. And now I have a side business that deploys and does all of that for you, which is really neat. So it's a great way to find other, you know, products or whatever you can build too. Yeah. It all comes back to like just using your own stuff and that ends up giving like really good results. Yeah, it always does. I mean, that's where Docker came from. You know, there's so many cool things that have come from Heroku too and, Shopify is doing incredible stuff for the Rails community and GitHub too. And so, you know, as much as this stuff as you can create and then share with other people, you never know which one is going to really take off, but you'd be surprised. So as much as you can open source too, I think is pretty, pretty good in general, good for the community. And then also happens to get a lot of eyeballs looking at what you're doing too. So that ends up being great. Yeah, we're both sort of in the same kind of the same business where it's like, you know, we're quote unquote marketing to developers. And it always feels like to me, it's like, you know, content marketing and stuff like that just doesn't really do that well. It just it's like, what do you contribute to the open source community? And it seems to help a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, seriously, everything of mine has started from my philosophy was when I was learning to code, I would just write a blog post if it took me more than four hours to like 
search something and, and, uh, you know, find the solution. So if there was a bug or something I was struggling with, if I figured it out, then I would go write a blog post and say, Hey, I ran into this problem. Here's what was wrong. Here's my solution. I tried these things. They didn't work, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point I was like, I'll just document my process. So I documented signing up for DigitalOcean, creating a server, and then deploying my code. I thought I'd do it publicly rather than in my own private notes. That led to, why don't I buy a domain just for Rails stuff? So I bought GoRails, and now that's screencasts and all this other stuff. And, you know, it's just cool to be able to help other people and give back to the community. So I'm, I'm glad to be able to be able to uh, do all that. It's neat. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, I really do appreciate the work you've done with that. Like I mentioned, I don't work that that much with Rails anymore. But, you know, I have watched a number of your videos when I was working on some client work and it definitely helped. Yeah. And same for you. I like there's so many times I'll st- stumble across some Docker thing and, it, you know, your name shows up or I see you on Hacker News once in a while. And it's always great. And then, you know, it's it's a small world when it comes to the tech community. There's There's lots of different languages and things, but like... You know, at the end of the day, the people who are creating content, writing blog posts are definitely a much smaller group than that wider community. So, you know, thank you, too, for doing what you do. Yeah, no problem. So, Chris, you know, thanks so much for coming on the show. And it was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be a guest. (laughs) Before we wrap this up here, uh, do you have any links that you want to share maybe to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile? Sure. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash E-X-C-I-D-3. Um, it's been my username for as long as I can remember. So if you look that up on GitHub or uh, exit3.com, that's my domain too. And uh, I run gorails.com, hatchbox.io, and jumpstartrails.com now. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop all those links in the show notes. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. Definitely fun. And on that note, to everyone listening... Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.